Well, thank you very much, Dutch, and welcome everybody. Can I first also thank you also for those comments, Ken, and can I also acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And uh, I also want to acknowledge, as I always do, if there are any servicemen and women here and any veterans who are here today and simply say thank you for your service. Uh, to Stutch, um, thank you again uh, for the invitation to be here again this year and the Australian Financial Review for bringing together uh, this group at a very important time for our country. In 2016, I said this. I was Treasurer at the time. I said, we must take action to strengthen our economic resilience, to deal with the shocks that will inevitably come to get debt under control by returning the budget to balance through disciplined expenditure restraint and a tax system that supports growth and provides sustainable revenues. Since I said that, the final budget outcome in the past three budgets exceeded the budget estimate on the night by a cumulative total of $37 billion. Year on year, bettering the mark that we set in each budget. Last year, the budget was restored to balance. And now, here we are. What we spoke of has now come before us. This is what I was talking about. This time we are in right now was what I was talking about back in 2016. We confront today a new, complex, hydra-headed and rapidly evolving E20 was going to be about, think again, we now have one goal together this year, to protect the health, the well-being and livelihoods of Australians through this global crisis and to ensure that when the recovery comes, and it will, we are well positioned to bounce back strongly on the other side. All Australians have a role to play in Australia successfully moving through this crisis. Large businesses in particular have a huge role to play and I particularly want to commend Qantas who I was with yesterday who have already played an important role in those three flights that they were able to put on and I was down at their headquarters yesterday thanking all of those staff and the Qantas team and all of those from DFAT and others who are involved in those operations. And credit where it's due, I want to thank the banks in order, Westpac, Commonwealth, NAB and ANZ for passing through the 25 basis point cut in response to my call the other week. We need your perseverance, your planning, your enterprise. We need your common sense. We need your calm. We need your commitment. But we need your patriotism as well. We need you to support your workers by keeping them employed. Hold on to your people because you will need them on the bounce back on the other side. Wherever possible, support them, full-time, part-time, casual, including with paid leave if they need to take time off during the course of the virus. Pay invoices and commit to pay them even faster for the next six months. That is what sticking together looks like. How you support your customers, your suppliers, your employees during the next six months and potentially beyond will say more about your company, your corporate values 
and the integrity of your brand than anything else you've likely done as an organisation. We also need your investment, looking ahead to the opportunities that are on the other side. Take the opportunity to invest in the skills of your workforce or in the capital projects that will provide the pathway to a new season of growth that will be there. As the Fin Review has stated on more than one occasion, this is a Team Australia moment. The government will soon announce our economic stimulus package geared to the unique nature of the challenge we face in the wake of the COVID-19 health crisis. And what I want to do today is outline the dimensions of this challenge, the principles that are informing our response, and why Australia is strongly positioned, not just the government, more so than virtually any other country in the world today, not just to ride out this crisis, but to emerge stronger and more productive on the other side. Australia's economy ended 2019 solidly in the face of a difficult global economy and domestic challenges, not least being the devastating drought that the country has been in through for many years now. And there's been no greater sight that I've seen more recently than where we've seen that rain falling. Employment was growing strongly, more than twice the OECD average and faster than any of the G7 advanced economies. Tax cuts for individuals, small and medium-sized business, as promised, infrastructure spending, including the bringing forward last year of some $4.2 billion of projects into the forwards. Low interest rates, strong trade and external performances, including three historic quarters of current account surpluses. Rising house prices after a stagnant market for some years. These were all supporting the pickup in growth that was borne out in last week's national accounts, up 2.2% in the December quarter through the year, up from 1.8% in September. Internationally, the US and China has inked a phase one trade deal, very welcome. The prospects of an orderly Brexit has risen and there were early positive signs of manufacturing activity and trade improvements. In short, we were heading into 2020 with growing domestic and international momentum out of last year. The Reserve Bank had drawn the same conclusion as many commentators had. The turning point had been reached, the Governor said, advising Cabinet earlier this year that 2020 was set up to be a much stronger year. The mid-year economic and financial statement released in early December confirmed that the budget was back in balance and heading for a clear surplus in 2019-20. This was not achieved through reckless forecasts of $180 US a tonne for iron ore. Indeed, the MyOFO assumptions were even more conservative at the time of December last year than we even had in the budget. Now, this was done through careful stewardship that saw budget estimates bettered by tens of billions year after year after year. After seven years, the structural integrity of the budget had been restored and government was once again living within its means as we'd promised. Expenditure was under control at less than 2% growth per year and the revenues ne needed to guarantee the essential services that Australians rely on were being produced by our economy, not through higher taxes. This could not have been achieved at a more important time for our country. Within a month, of that mid-year statement. The bushfire crisis intensified and COVID-19 struck. 
Occurring simultaneously, they have dramatically impacted Australia's economy and finances. In the March quarter alone, Treasury estimates around a 0.7% point hit to growth. In response to the bushfires, the Commonwealth committed an additional $2 billion to support individuals, small businesses, primary producers, tourism operators and communities most affected. That $2 billion injection was initial and additional, it was over two years and was in addition to the National Disaster Recovery Assistance that flows and will continue to flow from pre-existing disaster funding arrangements. Already $360 million has been paid out by the Federal Government to support bushfire-affected communities in just the past couple of months. More than $200 million of that has come from the $500 million that was profiled to be spent from the $2 billion National Bushfire Recovery Fund by the end of June. There was no suggestion that the $2 billion was going to be spent in two months. It was intended to be there over two years, to actually be there not just for the response but for the recovery. And just as the intensity of the bushfires started to abate and parts of the country that had been in drought for many years and finally saw decent rains, the coronavirus hit. The first cases of pneumonia uh, thought to have been connected with the coronavirus were detected in Wuhan, China in late December. Cases of the coronavirus officially named as COVID-19 by the World Health Organisation on 11 February started spreading throughout China and across the world. And as of this morning, there were 113,210 cases of COVID-19 globally across 108 countries. More than 3,975 lives lost, including three in Australia. Those lives lost to date are larger than SARS and those put together by, by multiple. So it clearly is a global health crisis. Australia moved quickly and we got ahead of the rest of the world. Our swift and decisive action to initiate travel restrictions on the basis of expert medical advice has helped to first contain and now slow the spread of the virus in Australia. And these timely measures have bought us time to prepare for the anticipated next phase of community transmission that we have now entered. For the first time ever, we activated the Emergency Response Plan for Communicable Diseases incidents of national significance. We have also fast-tracked the Australian Health Sector Emergency Response Plan to prepare ourselves to respond to a more rapid spreading of COVID-19 within Australia, uh, and that is a phase we are now looking into. We have prepared the national medical stockpile, and the Commonwealth is committed to a 50-50 shared health funding deal with the states and territories to address additional costs incurred by state and territory health services as a result of the diagnosis and treatment of patients with or suspected of having COVID-19. Our initial estimate is together that's at least a billion dollars. Last Thursday, the government stood up the national coordination mechanism within the Department of Home Affairs to support pandemic preparedness beyond the health system. And this body will coordinate activities across the Commonwealth, state and territory governments beyond the health response as well as industry to ensure a consistent national approach is taken to provide essential services across a range of critical sectors and supply chains. And this morning, the Attorney-General and Minister for Industrialations, Christian Porter, is holding a joint industry trade union roundtable focusing on workforce and industrial relations implications of the coronavirus. And Wednesday, the Minister for Industry, Science and Technology, Karen Andrews, will hold an industry roundtable on emerging supply chain impacts as a result of the coronavirus.
So the response is whole of government. It's at all levels of government. COAG will meet later this week. Our early intervention to contain the virus has so far enabled Australians to go about their everyday lives, and that continues to be our goal. COVID-19 is a global health crisis, but it also has very real and very significant economic impacts, potentially greater than the global financial crisis, especially for Australia. The epicentre of this crisis, as opposed to that one, is much closer to home. The GFC impacts were centred on the North Atlantic, and back then China was in a position to cushion the blow for Australia. The initial outbreak of COVID-19 in China saw consumers stay away from shops and many workers stay away from work, and that continues. Manufacturing output in China fell sharply in February, as the PMI showed, with the official measure plunging to the lowest level on record. Relative to SARS in 2013, China is substantially larger and more interconnected with the global economy, including to Australia, magnifying the reverberations surrounding international students were not in Australia when the travel ban was actioned. This is not just about the fee revenue for universities and colleges, but even more significantly, the second round impacts for the local economy. The consequences for other countries are just as significant given the integral role China plays as a source of final demand for goods and services and as part of the global supply chain. He said that spread now goes well beyond mainland China to over 100 countries. The OECD released updated forecasts last week and downgraded their expectations for global growth and across all major economies. Australia, of course, was not excluded, um, but got favourable mention. And you saw both the Reserve Bank and Treasury release estimates last week's of the significant direct impact of COVID-19 on growth, particularly in the March quarter. Now, as they do in times like these, and we've seen this obviously in the last 24 hours in particular, financial markets have sought to move, to respond and seek to reprice the risk that they're seeing. This is giving rise to particularly sharp movements in global equity and financial markets. Uh, off record highs, sure, but the impact on investors and retirees and no doubt the Sovereign Wealth Fund, Peter, <laughs> which is so ably managed, the Chair is here with us today, it's real. Uncertainty has led to volatility in financial markets. However, Australia's financial markets continue to operate effectively and the Reserve Bank Governor has noted the RBA will ensure the Australian financial system has sufficient liquidity. Uh, there is the potential for heightened risk aversion to flow over into reduced business and consumer spending, reduced demand across our economy. Now, these effects would be greater if coronavirus were to have a significant impact on the health of our workforce, which is what we need to plan for. And that's something we're working very hard to prevent at the moment. Now, this all means that the challenge we confront today is very different in nature, as I've argued, to the global financial crisis. The financial crisis started with excessive risk-taking in the financial sector and involved the collapse of financial institutions, the disruption of credit, the impairment of balance sheets and a prolonged recovery. The situation we face today is a health crisis that has moved quickly to weaken demand, disrupt supply chains, crunch cash flows, especially for small and medium-sized businesses, and especially in those sectors and locations most exposed and hardest hit. However, we must remind ourselves that the problem is temporal, not structural. It's about a biological contagion, not a financial one. 
In our response, we must be careful to solve this problem, the one we're facing now, not the last one. And we need to solve it for Australia, for our circumstances, and not appropriate the diagnosis for other economies elsewhere in the world. We need our response here in Australia. We also need to learn from the mistakes from, made from the global financial crisis, especially when it comes to ensuring that we have a clear fiscal exit strategy. The range of possible economic outcomes will depend on the spread, severity and duration of this health crisis and its interaction with the demand side and the supply side effects. Now, that means to fix our problem, our health response must be the primary response. From a health perspective, our focus is to slow the spread of the virus and to resource and manage scaled-up demand on our health system. I'll have more to say about that this week also. And more broadly, to coordinate the efforts to maintain continuity of services and supplies and to minimise civil disruption. But let me turn now to our fiscal response. As we finalise the government's fiscal response in coming days, and the Treasurer would have otherwise been here tonight, but he was with Treasury officials till late last night as we continue to work through these issues. Our objective is this. Keep people in jobs. Keep businesses in business. And ensure we bounce back stronger on the other side. It's about supporting community confidence, employment and business continuity. This means boosting domestic consumption, reducing cash flow pressures for the most vulnerable businesses and supporting new investments to lift productivity. Now, there are seven principles that will guide our response and the first of those is that measures must be proportionate to the degree of economic shock and the impact on the economy. Secondly, they need to be timely and scalable so they can be adjusted appropriately as the health and economic effects evolve. This is a dynamic situation we're in. Third, the response needs to be targeted to address the specific issues we are confronting, supporting those most affected and delivered where it will be most effective. We must not waste taxpayers' resources. Fourth, the response needs to be aligned with the many other arms of policy and activity, in particular monetary policy, and with the responses of other governments, particularly at a state and territory level. The government is working closely, as you have seen, with the Reserve Bank, uh, the Governor and his team. And as you know, the bank moved last week to cut the official cash rate by 25 basis points. Now, all of the four major banks and many other financial institutions have passed this through in full, and I acknowledge and commend them for that again today. Fifth, we must use existing delivery mechanisms wherever possible. That's where it goes pear-shaped if you get that design wrong, as we learned from the last stimulus. We saw those mistakes of trying to rush a range of new programs in response to the GFC. This is why we've been moving swiftly but patiently to ensure that the response that we announce can address these issues. Sixthly, the measures must be temporary and accompanied by a fiscal exit strategy. We cannot bake into the bottom line this response for years to come, holding the budget underwater. And finally, we must favour measures that will lift productivity. 
to enable the Australian economy to sustain an even stronger growth trajectory than we were on prior to the crisis. By following these principles, we believe we will protect the structural integrity of the budget, that we will maximise the impact of the measures to protect the livelihoods of Australians and our economy during this difficult period. And in doing so, we will prevent the need for future governments to spend the better part of a decade restoring the fiscal position and even longer paying back the debt. When the economy bounces back, our plan is that the budget bounces back as well. The stronger the recovery, the stronger the economy, the stronger the budget. Now, Australians have good reason to be confident that we are one of the best prepared in the world to mitigate both the health and economic impacts of COVID-19. Australia has a world-class health system. Our hospitals, our doctors, nurses, laboratories, medical researchers, among the best in the world. The Doherty Institute down there in Melbourne, a classic example, attracting funds from philanthropists like Jack Maher and others to find the vaccine. World class. And they're able to scale up their response and certainly will be with the support we're providing. We also have a remarkable history in this country of economic resilience. And we need to return to those values. This is due in no small measure to the strength of our institutions and our policy frameworks, including an independent, credible central bank and a flexible exchange rate. As I mentioned, monetary policy is working in concert with fiscal policy to support our economy. Our banks are well capitalised and awash with ample liquidity and our financial system is resilient. We have been working on that as well. Not only are banks well placed to lend at low rates, our businesses also have strong balance sheets providing a strong foundation for investment. It's not just the, the government's restored balance sheet that will support us through this crisis. It is the stronger balance sheet of businesses, of banks and indeed households. Our exchange rate is also playing its usual shock-absorbing role in the faces of an external shock, providing a welcome boost for our exporters. And Household balance sheets have also strengthened, as I just mentioned, in years, recent years, with mortgage holders now on average around two and a half years ahead of their mortgages, based on offset account and redraw facility balances. A strong fiscal position has also been core to our ability to respond to shocks like these. Our debt to GDP is one of the lowest in the developed world, and that didn't happen by accident. Over several years, we have taken the hard decisions needed to rebuild our fiscal strength, and in doing so, in the face of also coming off the back of the mining investment boom that ripped $80 billion out of investment in our economy, retaining our AAA credit rating. We didn't rebuild our fiscal strength by increasing taxes. Or we will continue to roll out our $100 billion infrastructure plan, including the Bring Forward that we acted on last year to bring forward some $4.2 billion worth of projects forward so they can be hitting the ground right now with additional investment that we worked through with the states last year. We will continue strengthening our defence force in line with our commitment to return defence spending to 2% of GDP and that will be achieved next budget year. That is also providing important opportunities for investment and growth and indeed stimulus in many parts of the country. We will continue to look for practical actions to curb the suicide rate with our Towards Zero plan, a core objective of our government, particularly amongst our veterans, amongst young people, amongst Indigenous Australians. We will continue to work with the states to progress the fourth action plan and our record $360 million to reduce violence against women and children. We will continue to help communities rebuild 
from the devastating drought and to deliver the much needed support in response to the bushfire crisis of our black summer. We will press on with the vital work of closing the gap for Indigenous Australians. We will continue to ensure the tax system rewards hard work, fair go for those who have a go, supports investment and doesn't hold our businesses back. And we will set up Australia for an energy future with a real plan that supports jobs and industry, one that is reliable, affordable and sustainable, a plan based on technology, not taxation and never-never targets. We will continue to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to meet our international commitments without increasing taxes or electricity prices or compromising the jobs of rural and regional Australians. We will do our bit to get rid of the plastics in our oceans, not just on our coasts but throughout our part of the world, and take care of our own waste. We will enable Australians to grasp the opportunities of the digital economy and to extend our competitive edge in new technologies and industries whether it's the space industry down in South Australia and across the country, whether it's in cyber security or in medical technologies, and of course fintech. We will continue to open international markets and advocate for the benefits of open global markets and the rules-based trading system and the reform of that. We will continue to lower regulatory barriers to investment through the work that Ben Morton's doing um, with our renewed deregulation push and we will progress practical and sensible reforms of the industrial relations system, not driven by ideology but driven by common sense to ensure the system remains fit for purpose and supports a strong economy. And we're serious about reforming the VET system so we can ensure Australians are trained with the skills businesses need so they, those Australians can get a job and the businesses can get ahead. And we will ensure our universities collaborate with business to undertake research that grows our economy. These remain the plans that will continue to guide our government into the future so that Australia rebounds quickly and emerges stronger from today's challenges. So, of course, we're not immune to the coronavirus, but I want to assure Australians that we're taking every step to protect their health, to protect their livelihoods and to protect our economy to ensure that we bounce back even stronger on the other side. Now is the time when we do need to pull together and I have every confidence that we will. That's what Australians do. Our planning, our preparations are well advanced. Our action is there to see. Our institutions are strong. Our people are strong. Our budget is balanced. Most importantly, we face this challenge with the greatest asset which remains undiminished and that is the common sense, resilience and ingenuity of the Australian people. Australia will pass this test and it will pass it strongly and we will emerge stronger on the other side. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Prime Minister, for a very comprehensive address on the issues at hand. Uh, we do have a few moments for a few questions and to ask them can I welcome to the stage the Australian Financial Review's political editor, Philip Curry. Yeah, do, do it. Um, stand up here because you're not mic. Well, thanks, Prime Minister. We've got time just for, just for a few questions. We've got a pretty big day ahead, I understand. Uh, ERC, ERC, Cabinet, etc. Right, decisions to make. Look... This time last year, you gave this speech last year, very different circumstances. There was an election coming. 
uh, you were making the case for re-election. You actually invoked the word recession last year, but in a different context. Uh, you were warning against a change of government. Um, now, we're, you know, as you said in your speech, circumstances have been mugged by circumstances in the last couple of months, and a lot of people in this room and economists are talking about the possibility of a recession. Um, what, what, what confidence do you have that what you're going to announce later this week, plus the collective efforts you've called for, that we can, we can head that off, we can keep our heads above water in June and beyond? Well, look, Phil, I, I don't find speculation on those things terribly helpful. Um, what I find helpful is, is what we do and what we announce and explaining why we're doing it and how we're doing it and ensuring that we're delivering on the things we say we're going to do. That's what changes circumstances, that's what uh, delivers the desired effect and that's what the government and I am very focused on what we do. What you do matters and, uh, and what you'll see from the announcements we'll make uh, later this week I think will demonstrate our understanding along the, in, in the terms that I've, I've outlined it today. You made reference to last year. Um, what I'm pleased about is we're going into this crisis with a balanced budget and not $387 billion worth of high taxes. Uh, I don't think that would have put Australia at all in a good position to deal with this. Um, as I said, uh, we have been patient and steady as we've restored the budget to balance. And in doing that, as I you know, warned back in 2016 as a Treasurer, uh, that's what you needed to do to build your buffers, to be able to take the action. And it's not just as, uh, me saying this. This is something that's recognised, whether it's by the IMF or the OECD or others, they recognise that Australia is well positioned to deal with this. Well positioned to deal with this. You, you, you mentioned in your speech about balance sheets. You've said, the, you've said previously the universities have savings upon which they'll have to draw. You've, you've asked big corporations here today to you know, keep paying workers, even if casuals and part-timers, if they don't, even if they, there's no work for them. And householders. Is, is, it, is it a case that everyone's going to have to dip into their, their savings, even households, on top of what the government's going to do? Is it an admission you can't... The government can't do everything. Well, the, the economy just isn't made up of the government. Um, it's made up of businesses. It's made up of households. It's made up of everybody. And um, what I'm referring to is the people's uh, individual household balance sheets. Um, for the you know, stats I quoted about being ahead of mortgages and, and the way they've been able to draw those balances, uh, business balance sheets, bank balance sheets, the Commonwealth balance sheet. I'd say state balance sheets as well. The state governments. Um, all, of, all of us are in a position today to be able to do what we need to do over the course of this virus crisis uh, to strengthen and see the Australian economy through. And it requires, I think, that mindset. Um, you want to you you have a bounce back on stronger on the other side, then it will require, I think, using those balance sheets um, that you've built for such a time as this uh, to ensure uh, that Australia emerges stronger. And we've seen another shaky night a shaky, shaky night overnight on Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, the ASX here is down nearly 20% just in a couple of weeks. What's your message to, to investors and, 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 by extension, just people who are worried about their super, what, what, given what's well, happening look, with the markets? What... I, I think trying to settle on a view about how that can be priced, then we see this volatility and we see the challenge to liquidity in, in, in these markets. Now... I would expect to see that settle in terms of their ability to price risk with more information. And the government itself, we are getting more information about the nature and the trajectory of this virus. 
I mean, there are a couple of things we already know about it. It has nowhere near the mortality rates that we've seen from SARS and MERS. Uh, the figures we're seeing now are sub 1%. Um, and you know, SARS and MERS were more than double-digit times those sorts of, uh, those sort of fatality rates. It's still a very serious virus, um, but it is moving more towards um, a very bad flu than it is to a, a deadly type of virus like SARS and MERS. It is a long way um, from those sorts of impacts. Viruses um, run a course. Um, that's what the epidemiologists tell us. And so there's a lot of work not just being done in Australia but around the world and I'm sure um, being uh, resourced by many financial houses as well so they can best plot the course of this and understand what that risk means and so they can price it into the decisions that they're making in markets on a daily basis. So I think with more information and better understanding and as we've seen the virus extend into more countries that gives the availability of a lot more data sets upon which to run these models. And I'd say at the moment some of the best learnings are coming out of uh, Korea where we have a very high testing rate. Um, we have a, you know, a, a much more advanced health system and uh, the, the data we're seeing come out of there is informing a lot more, I think, of the modelling which is being done, which means that uh, I think as markets get better information, they'll respond, I think, in a less volatile way. But in the meantime... Um, it's important that the Reserve Bank, and these are conversations that we of course have with them and I'm sure others do, uh, are, are keeping a close eye on those liquidity issues in those markets and the roles that they have to play and equally the Treasury is doing the same thing. Okay, and just briefly, I know you have to go. Um, mm. On the Reserve Bank, do you think we're getting closer to quantitative easing? Well, I'm going to leave that one to Phil Lowe. I've got plenty of decisions that I have <laughs> to make and they don't involve um, whether that step is taken or not. Um, but what I will say is this. And that is that, uh, I mean, one of the first things I did when I was Treasurer is, is as I restored again the process of meeting on a monthly basis with the Reserve Bank, and I know uh, the current Treasurer keeps that, um, keeps that process up. It's, it's, it's a very important relationship, and we both have different roles to play. It's important we understand each other's thinking. Uh, it's not for us to sort of, I suppose, uh, run each other's uh, book. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we're both tasked individually to do. Uh, but I can assure people that there is a very high level of alignment in understanding what the challenges are and, uh, and that will, I think, continue to support confidence uh, throughout Australian markets and the Australian economy that uh, both arms of monetary and fiscal policy will be pulling in the same direction. OK, and just finally, I did have one question from the floor I was to ask. And, um, it's quite succinct. Are, are we, are the world, is the world overreacting to this virus? Uh, well, if you look at the supermarkets of Chalora, you could, um, you, could, <laughs> you could quickly come to that conclusion. Um, and that's why I think it is important that we get this into perspective. Uh, the government's been very sober about our assessment of this. We've taken it seriously from the outset. Um, I remember in the v first couple of days when um, this was presenting in January, we were dealing uh, with the bushfire crisis at the time, but uh, the, the Incident Response Centre in Canberra had been set up and I went there with Dr Murphy and um, those who were attending seemed to be interested in other political issues at the time, but for me it was very clear that this was going to be a very significant issue that had very uh, profound, broader, economy-wide impacts globally uh, because what it does is... is it, it, what this virus does is disrupts economies, global economies, domestic economies. It's a disruptor. Um, but it is a health disruptor, not a financial disruptor in terms of its cause. And so it's, it's important to keep it in perspective. 
This has a fixed life, this virus. It will run its course. And it's important we do things while we address this that does not impede our longer-term position. In fact, use the time. Training, skills development, investment. Um, I know that many companies will, will ask staff to take their built-up leave during this period of time. Um, there are many things companies can do to work together with their employees to work through this. Uh, we will face, I suspect, depending on how the virus spreads, um, there will be shortages of labour in particular areas. And that will mean that some people who have been working in some places who may not be working in those places will be, have the opportunity to be working in, in other roles, um, if that's possible, uh, depending on the training required for that. It's very possible that we're going to have to see, and I know state governments will be working closely on this, um, to drawing um, more part-time nurses into more full-time nurses. In, in, the, in the weeks and months ahead. So it's about getting ahead of it, it's about staying ahead of it, it's about keeping a level head on it and ensuring that we take the actions that are necessary in accordance with the principles I've set out today. As I said, we're all in this together and we've all got a role to play. Yeah. Thank you very much, Brahman. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. <laughs>